Come see the new quiz show, Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley. It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at las.com slash events. Studios. In my research for this podcast, I came across something I actually wanted to know more about, not less, with regards to Jack Parsons. It's mentioned in both Strange Angel, George Pendle's 2005 biography, as well as Sex and Rockets, John Carter's book about Parsons from 1999. According to Pendle, When Parsons was a teenager, he attempted to summon the devil. Apparently, he was successful at it, at least in his mind. Carter actually quotes from something Parsons wrote much later, where he addresses himself in the second person, quote, The magical fiasco at the age of 16 was needful to keep you away from magic until you were sufficiently matured, close quote. But that's all we know. I've tried to picture it. Parsons is a kid who loves science fiction. He's got a big imagination. He's getting bullied at school. But at home, he's allowed to blow stuff up in the backyard. Then one night, he wants to try something even wilder. He's going to summon the devil. I mean, you have to hand it to him. The kid has moxie. So, maybe he waits for his mother to go to sleep. He shuts his door, lights a candle. Maybe he lights some incense and opens the window to air out the room. Everything's a little spooky. He closes his eyes. He starts mumbling something about Satan. And then, suddenly, wham! The window slams shut, and the breeze blows out the candle, and Jack Parsons jumps out of his skin. Look, I don't know what really happened that night. Nobody does. But here's what I come back to. Whatever took place scared him, really scared him, scared him enough not to attempt any more magic spells for years to come. And you don't very often hear about Jack Parsons being scared or hesitant or even just cautious. No, he was a teenager and he was frightened. If only that sense of caution had stuck around. I'm M.G. Lord, and this is L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. When we last met Parsons, it was the mid-1940s. Parsons' girlfriend and L. Ron Hubbard had conned him out of his savings. 
When he got forced out of Aerojet and Betty ran off with his new friend, L. Ron Hubbard, he sort of went in a downward spiral and had a mental breakdown or manic episode. That's Justin Chapman. We spoke to Justin quite a bit in previous episodes. He's a Pasadena journalist who's written multiple articles about Parsons. And when that would happen, he would delve further into his magic and perform rituals. And that was sort of his way to cope with what was happening in his life. Uh, So he was really depressed at that point. He lost all his money from being swindled by Hubbard and, and Betty. And everything that he had had been building up to just sort of crumbled away at that point. And so he uh, decided to step away from the OTO and resigned as head of the Agape Lodge. He needed to get a respectable job again. He needed to get, get back into reality. Though as far as I'm concerned, reality and Jack Parsons never were a perfect match. Remember the Babylon working? This is the guy who drove out into the desert and asked the universe for a new lady friend. And shazam! Marjorie Cameron, a witchy hot redhead, strides into his life. She had uh, long flowing red hair and these bright eyes, and so he jokingly called her my witch from that point on. But she was this sort of boisterous, eccentric artist. Now we all know... Well, most of us know that this was just a massive coincidence. Maybe no one told Parsons that. Marjorie Cameron showed up at the Parsonage, which is Jack Parsons' house on South Orange Grove, in January 1946, shortly after he had begun the Babylon working, this series of intense rituals meant to conjure up a mate. And so he saw it as successful because here's this woman who showed up exactly like I asked for. She was an artist and and later in life became a really respected uh, artist in the underground art scene. And she wasn't as into the black magic as Jack was, although he got her involved uh, and they started practicing voodoo and witchcraft and, and different things. So that, then he decided, well, she's not the, the Babylon that I try to conjure, but she is a, a suitable mate, basically. Yeah, there you go. A suitably witchy mate. After all, if you can't be with the sorceress you love, love the sorceress you're with. Here's Justin. Their relationship was not the same as his and Betty's, whom he he was just in love with and devastated when she ran off. His and and Marjorie's relationship was more distant, uh, and they weren't as affectionate with each other. And uh, they had a lot of falling out and falling back in. She would go to Europe for a time. She'd go to New York. She'd go down to Mexico. She has other partners. So Jack tries to make it work with Marjorie and gets a stable job in rocketry. He works at North American Aviation. But unfortunately, this happens right as the Red Scare is ramping up. Someone accuses Jack of having ties to a Communist Party member, and that marks him an undesirable employee for national defense work. North American Aviation immediately suspends Parsons from working there. I think he was outraged at being investigated. You know, he wrote to Von Karman, You know I'm not a communist, and, you know, I I should just leave the country because they say they believe in freedom here, but clearly they don't. They're just going after people for, for no good reason. Eventually, with help from a former president of Aerojet, Parsons' security clearance is restored, and he gets another job at Hughes Aircraft, but he's not out of the woods. 
There, as we mentioned in a previous episode, he gets in trouble over some classified documents. A secretary at the office reports him after he asks her to type up some classified materials that he was using to apply to a new job in Israel. So, Parsons loses his security clearance for good, loses his position and his salary. The FBI brings him in. They're looking ideally to charge him with espionage. But ultimately... The assistant U.S. attorney in L.A. decides not to prosecute Jack because of a lack of evidence. It seems like Jack is more of a weirdo than a threat to national security. For Parsons, though, without a security clearance, the aerospace industry won't take him. So he gets a job working with explosives, which I find kind of touching. All these years later, back to his teenage pastime, only this time being paid to blow stuff up. He started working for uh, powder companies again, like he did in his youth, and uh, explosive companies, and for special effects companies for for the movies, for motion pictures. Uh, Little explosive squibs, like when bullets go off and explode on people's chests, for example. The materials used in those special effects could be highly volatile, but Jack, ever the mad scientist, didn't seem to mind. Things seemed to be finally looking up for him. He and Marjorie were planning a months-long trip to Mexico. He even mentioned taking some of his chemicals with him so he could start a fireworks company there. He told an old OTO friend, quote, I am finished here. There is nothing more for me to do, so I am going away, but I shall come back, close quote. But he didn't come back. Or, more accurately, he never got to leave Pasadena. So, on that fateful day, June 17, 1952, Jack and Marjorie are living in Pasadena. Here's Justin. The address was 1071 South Orange Grove Avenue. And he turned the the ground floor room, this laundry room, into his personal laboratory. And he was creating uh, all kinds of explosives and and, uh, mixing powders and working on his special effects uh, projects for motion pictures. Sort of a small house with several people living upstairs. Jack and Marjorie are about to leave for Mexico. Marjorie's out shopping for some last-minute items for their trip. Before they go, though, Parsons decides to take one more job. Jack got this last-minute order from a special effects company. He had left his powder company the previous week that he was working at, and he was doing this last job, supposedly, for this this company, mixing this uh, this explosive um, fulminate of mercury. And he was using it in in a coffee tin, and it wasn't using beakers or proper equipment. Let's put a pin in that coffee can. We'll come back to it in a second. Anyway, Parsons has got all these explosives at hand. There's TNT. There's fulminate of mercury. There's PETN, a.k.a. pentaurethritol tetranitrate, one of the most dangerous explosives known to humankind. Back to Justin. One of the tenants saw him uh, as he was working on this in late afternoon, five o'clock, uh, and said, "You know, don't don't blow us up." And he said, "Don't worry about it. You know, this is my this is my last job." And so the the tenant went upstairs, and he's mixing this uh, fulminate of mercury, and 
The police say that the can slipped out of his hand, hit the ground, and this explosive is so sensitive, any time it makes contact with a hard surface, it, it ignites. And so they, they say it slipped out of his hand and he reached for it and the can hit the ground and exploded right next to him. You should know the details of Jack Parsons' death are pretty gory. So fair warning, anybody who doesn't like that sort of thing should probably skip ahead to the break. The explosion, to put it mildly, is a big one. There were actually two explosions, one right after another. The noise was heard for about two miles. Shock waves shook the city. When the explosion went off, the floor was just uh, stained uh, and the, the walls were blown out, windows. A neighboring greenhouse was destroyed. It blew out the windows of a, a neighbor's house, one of the high society Pasadena folks. It was heard for you know miles all around the city. And it happened just you know inches away from Jack, the explosion. It just exploded right right into him. One of Parsons' arms is torn off by the blast. The explosion shatters his legs. It rips off part of his jaw. The room was just destroyed. The tenants upstairs were jolted, of course, thrown off the couch. A chandelier came crashing down, a piano tipped over. And uh, they ran downstairs and found Jack trapped under this heavy laundry tub. And so they lifted that off and pushed him up against the, the wall. And they called an ambulance, an ambulance came to pick him up. He was still alive somehow. They brought him to Huntington Hospital, which is right up the road here. And his last words supposedly were, but I wasn't done yet. And there is more sadness to come. His mother, hearing the news, commits suicide within four hours of Jack's death. As Justin says, it's just a series of tragedies that erupt in Pasadena that day. The question soon becomes, however, exactly who was responsible. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. As soon as Jack Parsons dies, stories begin to circulate. First, there's the official police story that the explosion happened behind him. Then there's a revised police story, this time specifying that Parsons dropped the coffee tin he was using and everything went boom. Here's Justin again. The person he worked with at the powder company, this company had worked at until the Friday before the explosion, told the newspapers that this is completely uncharacteristic of Jack. He, he was not careless. He wouldn't just drop a tin. He wouldn't have these powerful explosives just willy-nilly uh, around a room and not be using the proper equipment. It's like, you know, Jack was a real scientist and he was diligent and he didn't make mistakes like that. Now, as we've discussed in this podcast, Parsons actually had long been known for storing dangerous chemicals around the house, back to his earliest Suicide Squad days. 
This is a guy who kept a barrel of gunpowder on the back porch. So if Jack didn't blow himself up, then who did? There are whispers of homicide. Marjorie later said the explosion came from underneath the floorboards, which would imply murder. And and she and some others thought, well, maybe it was Howard Hughes who killed him because when he was working for Hughes, he uh, stole these classified documents and was going to give them to a foreign country. Or uh, others said, well, maybe it was the military because he was trying to leave the country with his vast knowledge of rocketry and related weapons. One theory actually involves the LAPD, with the LAPD not exactly being the good guys. Back in the 30s, uh, Jack was an explosives expert at a trial for a corrupt cop named Earl Kynette. He was the head of police intelligence for LAPD, and he was being investigated by a private investigator, Harry Raymond, who was looking into this cop's corruption on behalf of the guy who owned Clifton Cafeteria in downtown L.A., Uh, who was an advocate for good government. And, you know, the police were extremely corrupt at this time, and and city government was as well. Uh, So this corrupt cop, Earl Kynette, had, you know, his cronies place a car bomb underneath this private investigator's car. And it exploded, but the PI survived. And so then uh, he was arrested and and put on trial, and the prosecution brought uh, Jack Parsons as an explosives expert and testified at the trial. The trial was a really big deal. At the time, Parsons was 23. He was recommended to the prosecutor by Caltech because they respected him as a chemist. Jack built a replica of the bomb that he thought was placed under the car. And with witnesses from the court, they went and blew up an old Chrysler. And the evidence of the explosion matched exactly what happened with the car bombing situation. Justin said Parsons' replica was the major piece of evidence that put Kynette in jail. He went away for a dozen or so years. And guess who uh, got out of jail just a couple days before Parsons died? So was it revenge by homicide? Death by supernatural forces? Or was it simply an accident? I have no idea what really happened with Jack Parsons. Uh, I don't think it's as cut and dry as an an accident. There's too many, you know, circumstantial evidence for other things. It could be. He just dropped it. You know, Ed Foreman, his lifelong friend, said that Jack sweat a lot. It was a hot day that day. It's very likely he is sweating and it slipped out of his hand, which is entirely possible. I certainly don't think it was suicide because he was planning this long trip. He was starting to get his life back together. His wife came back. You know, he had employment again. He was leaving the U.S., which he had been wanting to do for a long time. And he said, I wasn't done yet. So I, I highly doubt it was suicide. I think the corrupt cop getting out of jail a few days before he died certainly should have been looked into more. If it was murder, that's probably the most plausible scenario. I doubt it was Howard Hughes or or the U.S. military, but who knows? Personally, after spending a lot of time over the last few months thinking about Jack Parsons, I think his death was most likely an accident caused by the carelessness around chemicals that had scared Frank Molina in the early days. But there's a related story I love that we brought up in a previous episode. In the early days of the Suicide Squad, when Parsons and Frank Molina were desperate for funding, they came up with a very Los Angeles-y idea. They'd write a screenplay. Here's Justin again. 
they wrote this film treatment because they wanted to sell it to a movie studio like MGM in order to make some movie money in order to fund their, their rocket research. That was the reason why they started writing this thing. It never got sold, but it still exists and it's eerily prophetic, this story. They have characters clearly based on themselves at an institute called the Institute, clearly based on Caltech, with a figure like Von Karman and other members of their rocket research group. And the president of the Institute faces attacks on the organization if he doesn't side with a right-wing capitalist and a fascist actor who want to sell the rocket research to the Nazis. Elements of that came to pass because after the war, the U.S. essentially forgave and brought over a, a ton of Nazi scientists who helped develop the U.S. rocketry program after Jack and Frank built the foundation of it. That is to say, Operation Paperclip, as previously discussed. Here, Frank Molina and others are sidelined because of their communist views or, or supposed communist views or affiliations. And meanwhile, these actual Nazis are put up on a pedestal as the founders of the space race and space exploration and rocketry. And so Frank and others saw that as the double standard that it was. It's bananas how prescient it was. It's like the story they came up with divined a lot of paths their lives would follow. And it also predicts a couple of other things, uh, including one of their friends who was a Chinese national who was a Caltech uh, student. Chen Shushen. In the script, it's unclear if the Chen character is deported, but his scholarship is revoked due to the war in China, and he returns there. So there are echoes, right? The film treatment that Jack and Frank wrote also predicts Jack's death. A uh, character based on him uh, dies in a fiery explosion. It's just a fascinating uh, window into how they thought of themselves at that time and how what they saw down the road that actually came, came true. Jack Parsons' life and career were brief, but his influence on the aerospace industry, on American and global rocketry, is undeniable. He's become the most famous member of the Suicide Squad, maybe not for his achievements at Caltech, but for all of the ridiculous stuff he did elsewhere. But Justin points out that most famous is a relative term. I think a lot of the world doesn't remember Jack Parsons. Um, yeah, I mean, Jack Parsons was a, a, you know, a rocketry savant, and he didn't go to school for it without his affiliation with Frank Molina and Theodore von Karman and Caltech, he wouldn't have been in that position to invent this this rocket fuel. But without Jack Parsons' contributions, we wouldn't have gone to the moon as soon. We wouldn't have explored space as soon. The quirky black magic side, definitely in, in popular imagination, has eclipsed the scientists' uh, rocketry side of Jack Parsons, unfortunately, because just like Frank Molina who also made uh, major contributions to rocketry. His affiliation with communism caused him to be pushed out of JPL and the U.S. and not get the credit he deserved. Both of them are the fathers of rocketry, uh, along with a number of other uh, people at Caltech um, and in Germany and, and Russia and elsewhere in the U.S. too. There are some uh, other pockets of rock, rocket research going on. But their fuel inventions completely changed the game and they're not quite recognized for the, the extent of that contribution that, that they should be. One of the questions that's lingered over this series, at least for me, 
is something we talked about when we introduced Parsons, the idea of him being two people, the madman and the scientist, the magician and the chemist, and maybe at the core of it, an insecure teenager in his bedroom who scared the bejesus out of himself, but perhaps also was inspired. The question is, how much was one responsible for the other? I certainly think that if Jack Parsons didn't have that madness to him, if he didn't have that dark side, he wouldn't be in a position to think outside the box and create this new fuel that no one else had ever thought of before, even though people had been studying it for centuries. And he wasn't uh, highly educated. He didn't have degrees. His madness, I think, was a key part of that. Of course, it was also part of his downfall and led him to be gullible and trusting when he shouldn't have been, led him to be a bad judge of character and other people, allowed other people to take advantage of him, you know, allowed him to get in trouble with with the government and his employers and ultimately to be careless and, and lose his life. I've said numerous times during this podcast how much I admire Frank Molina. Clearly, Parsons rubs me the wrong way, and maybe there's bias in that. Maybe I've never given him enough credit because I thought Molina never got the credit he deserved. Anyway, in a spirit of generosity, I'll give Justin the last word. I asked him how we should think of Jack Parsons, rocketry, sex magic, and everything else. I think people should remember Jack as a brilliant but uh, a little crazy major figure of the 20th century who's, who's not yet recognized as such. I mean, he lived fast and died young, and, you know, he certainly changed humanity's relationship with space, with the stars, forever. If you Google JPL, you may run into people speculating what it means. Granted, this is the internet, ergo full of bozos, so a running theory is that JPL secretly stands for Jack Parsons Lives, or even Jack Parsons Laboratory. And while Chapman makes a good case for why Parsons is an important figure in rocket science, the truth of the matter is this. JPL doesn't credit Parsons in its official origin story. It refers to the original squad as, quote, several graduate students led by Frank Molina, along with rocket enthusiasts from the Pasadena area, close quote. JPL casts Parsons and Foreman as rocket enthusiasts, not rocket scientists. And in the next episode, we'll understand why Molina is credited and how his work became foundational for space exploration. We'll go behind the scenes at the actual JPL to see his imprint, all to figure out what exactly is the squad's legacy today and what that means for aerospace tomorrow. That's next time on Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is hosted by me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of Alea Studios in collaboration with Western Sound. 
Shana Naomi Crockmull is our vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for Alea Studios. Ben Adair is the executive producer for Western Sound. Dan Leone is the showrunner. Producers are Savannah Wright, Tyler Hill, Caitlin Parker, and Becky Nicolaitis. The show is written by Rachel Knowles, Rosecrans Baldwin, and me, M.G. Lord. It was edited by Savannah Wright. Sound design by Tyler Hill. Mixing and mastering by Tom McLean. Research and consulting by History Studio. Our website at alaus.com is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Alaus Studios. The marketing team of Alaus Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Alaus Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is a production of Elias Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow-up moment. Vidiots and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history. Because movie history is LA history. Listen to Revival House on How to LA wherever you listen to podcasts.